0: So, have you ever had a dream that was so vivid and so real that when you woke up, you were 100% sure beyond any shadow of a doubt that that dream was completely true and real, that this was a real memory? Yeah, I I haven't either. That's not a thing that happens to me. Uh, I, I don't really remember my dreams, and when I do, they are so wacky and off the wall that I just know that that could not have been a real thing. My wife, on the other hand, who boy, she let me, let me put it this way, let me put it this way. Sometimes I will wake up, you know, my alarm will go off five or six times and I'll finally get out of bed and I look over at, at Ashley and I say, oh, hello, my love, good morning, how did you sleep? Can I get you something before I leave for work? Is there anything I can do for you? And in return, I receive the stare that pierces me to the innermost being of my soul, because her anger is burning so fiercely and I have no idea what's going on. Now, Ashley and I have been married nearly 12 years. December will be 12 years. We're very excited about that. Uh, but I've caught on a little bit about how this happens. I, I know that this comes up. I know that this is the thing that goes on. So I do what anyone would do when they're woke, waking up first thing in the morning and get accused of something. I look her dead in the eye and I say, woman, what in the world are you talking about? Now, I'll be honest, that doesn't really help anything. Um, and I don't really call her woman when she's in the room, but I say, what are you talking about? What is going on? And she looks at me with the most serious expression on her face and she says something like, I cannot believe that you would even think that you could speak to me after you did something like that. I'm like, what did I do? Do you know what you did? You sent my mom up in the space in a rocket ship in the backyard. Or how in the world did you think it was okay to teach the kids how to fly? We just bought them new shoes and now they don't need them. And these are completely legitimate concerns if they were real. But they're just dreams. Now, to be fair, Ashley's dreams are typically a little bit more realistic. It's like, why didn't you take out the trash or why didn't you do this other thing that uh, I probably should have done? But sometimes they're just off the wall because that's how dreams are. Most of the time, they're just completely ridiculous and don't make any sense. Most of the time. Right now, we're in a teaching series. This is our fourth week in this teaching series where we're going through the life of Joseph. And if you uh, know anything about Joseph, you know that he's often called the dreamer. And that's because Joseph, when he was young, he had some dreams. Dreams that his 11 brothers would bow down to him and worship. Dreams that his 11 brothers and all of his his moms and dad would bow down to him and worship. Because Joseph was born into a family where his father had not one wife, but four wives. Can't even imagine all the death stares there. But four wives... And Joseph was born to his father's favorite wife because when you have more than one, you have to pick a favorite. And so he was the favorite son of the favorite wife and his father made sure that everybody knew it. So when these dreams start coming after Joseph has already been proclaimed the favorite and he says, everybody's gonna bow down to me, I saw it in a dream. His brothers get very, very angry to the point that they decide that if they kill Joseph, there's no way they'll ever have to worship him. And so they throw him in a cistern and are going to kill him. But one brother, Reuben, says, eh, let's not shed his blood. Here's a better idea. Let's just let him be there and we'll figure something out. And some slavers come by and they sell him into slavery down to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt and he works as a slave in the house of Potiphar. He does everything right. He does everything well. He keeps going. And Potiphar eventually sees this and says, Joseph, you're the best. I'm going to make you in charge of my entire house. And then Potiphar's wife notices Joseph and has some different feelings and to the point that she chases him down and chases him down until he just finally rejects her enough that she gives up and says, if I can't have you, then I'm just going to accuse you of trying to have me and gets Joseph thrown into prison. And that's what we're going to pick up today is Joseph being wrongly accused and thrown into prison. Now, you can imagine if you're wrongly accused and thrown into prison that you're not going to be excited about it. You're not going to be happy about it. You might call some waves. You might sit and pout. You might do all these things that make it where you don't want to be there, and you make it well known that you don't want to be there because you don't deserve to be there. But that wasn't how Joseph worked. He got in there in the prison, and he was just as good a prisoner as he was a slave. He got in there and he did everything right. He followed all the rules. He made everything better to the point that the warden of the prison came in and said, i tell you what, why don't you just be in charge of everything and uh, I'll just hang out and it'll be a better prison for it. And so that's what Joseph does. Joseph gets in charge of everything. In Genesis 39, it even says this, because the Lord was with Joseph, he gave him success in all that he did. I guess it's too bad Joseph didn't try like a prison break because he would have had success in it and then he wouldn't be there anymore. But maybe not because it looks like God is lining up Joseph to be right where he wants him to be. Because it's not very long before two of Pharaoh's servants have been thrown into prison. Uh, his cupbearer and his chief baker have been thrown into prison and on the same night they have a dream. The baker has a dream that there's three baskets of bread sitting on his head. And as he's walking to Pharaoh, birds come and eat all the food from the basket. And the cupbearer has a dream that three bunches of grapes come down and he grabs a bunch and squeezes it into a cup and hands the cup to Pharaoh. And they're telling Joseph this dream. And Joseph says, oh, I know exactly what this means. And he looks at the cupbearer. He says, in three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and you will be returned to your position and you will be back where you are. And when you do, please remember me. The cupbearer says, if this happens, I'll definitely remember you. And then the baker's all excited. He's like, oh man, what does mine mean? And Joseph says, uh, well, in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift you up and impale you on a pole where your flesh will be eaten by birds. Cupbearer, don't forget who I am. It'll be. And so there's this moment there when Joseph is, is doing this thing. Now the cupbearer gets out of prison. Exactly what Joseph says happens. Three days later, the baker's impaled and the cupbearer goes back to serving the king. But he forgets his promise. He forgets Joseph. We're gonna be in chapter 41 of Genesis this week. If you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to there, get that ready. Uh, If you, that helps a lot. Uh, If you don't, you can uh, grab a Bible over here. Over here, they moved it. Uh, by the connection hub, there's some over there. Those are good, easy, readable versions of the Bible that you can uh, take home with you because we want everybody to have one of those if you need one. But also, if you can, you can look it up on your phone or it will be on the screen over here behind me. We'll be in Genesis chapter 41, starting at verse 1. When two full years had passed. That's two years since Joseph interpreted the dream for the cupbearer. Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river came up seven cows, sleek and fat. They grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. The cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. But he woke up in a panic. He woke up and, uh, uh, oh gosh, this is a real dream. This is a real thing. He felt like my wife does when she wakes up in the morning and knows that whatever she thought happened had happened. Pharaoh knows that this was something real, that this was something important. So he calls together all of his magicians, all of his sorcerers, all of his scientists, all of his counselors, all of the wise men of Egypt, and he tells them these dreams. And collectively, they put their heads together and they come back to Pharaoh and say, meh. I have no idea what your dreams mean. And Pharaoh is getting frustrated as one after another, they say they have no idea, until finally the cupbearer goes, oh, I completely forgot. And Pharaoh's like, what are you talking about? He said, well, years ago, you were angry with your servant and you threw me in jail. And while I was there, I had a dream that I was gonna be released. And this Hebrew named Joseph interpreted the dream for me and it came true exactly as he said it would. And he did one for the, the baker as well. And the Pharaoh, being the king of all Egypt, does what a king does. He says, well, bring this Hebrew before me. And so they go get Joseph and get him cleaned up. And he's brought before Pharaoh. Genesis forty-one fifteen. this is what Pharaoh says to Joseph. I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, I want you to take a second and put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Put yourself in Joseph's place. You have been brought out of prison where you have been wrongly accused after being made a slave where you were sold into slavery by your brothers. And now you're in front of the king of probably the greatest country in the world at the time. And he says, I need you to do something for me. Joseph could have looked at him and said, oh, you want me to interpret your dream? I'll tell you what. i got these brothers back over in Canaan if you will send a squad over there with some big swords to go and show them something because they sold me into slavery, I'll interpret your dream for you. Or he could have said, you know what, you want me to be uh, an interpreter for you? You want me to interpret your dream? Well, Potiphar, you know about this guy? He works for you. He lied about me and got me thrown in prison. And don't get me started on his wife. Go take care of Potiphar. No, you want... Me to interpret this dream for you. Let me let me mention your cupbearer that's standing right there. Two years, man. It's been two years since you said you would say something. But no, Joseph doesn't do any of this. He doesn't have this bitterness. He doesn't have this victim mentality. In fact, in all of Scripture, there is no place where we see Joseph being bitter towards the people that have wronged him, and no place do we see him speak a resentful word against his brothers or Potiphar's wife. He just maintained his faith in God and the idea that God was at work in his life and was taking care of him. You know, Joseph could have gone another way, though. He could have said, you know what, Pharaoh, you're right. I am the one that hears dreams and interprets them because I am the man. I am the best. I got mad skills when it comes to dream interpretation. But no, he didn't do that either. Listen to what Joseph says. Verse 16. 16. Joseph says, I cannot do it. Cannot do it. It's not me. I can't interpret dreams, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. See, Joseph knew where that power came from. Joseph knew where his dreams came from. And as much as dreams had gotten him in trouble through his life, he knew that God gave him those answers for a reason. And he gave God credit where that credit was due. And so Pharaoh shares his dreams. He tells about the cows and he tells about the, the grain, and immediately Joseph knows the answer. And he gives the response, the interpretation. He says, The two dreams mean the same thing, Pharaoh. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of prosperity and abundance, and they'll be followed by seven years of famine and lean years. And whatever's stored up in those seven good years, if you're not careful, the seven years of famine will come and eat it away and it'll be like it didn't ever exist. But Joseph goes a step further. He doesn't just interpret the dream. He also makes a recommendation. He suggests that they store up the abundance during the seven years, put it in storehouses, take care of it, hold on to it, have everyone give a, a fifth of what their harvest is to the government so that they can maintain it, control it, so that the people can be fed during the seven years of famine. And he ends by suggesting this, verse 33. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man to put in charge of all of the land of Egypt. Jesus says, find somebody to smart. Find somebody that that knows what's going on. Find somebody that can handle all of this and put them in charge of everything. And the crazy thing happens, Pharaoh agrees. He's like, that interpretation makes perfect sense. It feels right. It feels good. I know this is what's going to happen. I agree with you. And your plan is fantastic. That is a great plan. Where are we going to find somebody like this? Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and of all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. Pharaoh takes this ex-slave, ex-convict, and makes him at the young age of just 30 years old the second most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world at the time. That's crazy. It seems like something out of a fantasy book. Like you're, you're gonna be reading along. And go, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it, the poor downtrodden, everything goes wrong person all of a sudden gets lifted up into a position of power over everything and is able to do all the stuff that he's supposed to do. It's like Hagrid showing up to tell Harry, Not only are you a wizard, but you are the most famous wizard of the entire generation. Or Obi-Wan teaching Luke how to use the lightsaber that was his father's and how to use the force. It just seemed so fantastical. It seemed so impossible. But unlike those stories, this one's real. This one really happened and that makes it so much more awesome. This is so good for Joseph who's been through so much. But I'll be honest. I find it hard for me to see how this is good for me. When I look at the story, I I just don't know how this is good for me. My daughter Amelia that was up here with me earlier, uh, she's super smart. Uh, Great kid, love her to death, but she is just, out-of-this-world genius-level smart for a not-quite-two-year-old. Um, I, I, and I just may be a dad talking, I'll be honest, but uh, she knows her colors really well. I mean, she don't know what the names of them are, but uh, when she sees something that's orange, she looks at it and says, Pippin, because my little boy Pippin, he loves the color orange, and if it's orange, he wants it. He doesn't care what it is. He just, if it's orange, like... If he only had orange clothes ever in his life, he would be thrilled um, because that's all he wears. That and Spider Man. Um, but uh, she knows it. She knows it. that's that's Pippin, and she does the same thing with green. Green is Callel, and pink is Leia. And she's got these colors down. But this weekend, uh, we were selling popcorn for the Cub Scouts. Hint, hint. Um, and we were standing out in front of Food Lion. Uh, down at Masonboro Commons and we're trying to teach her the difference between gray and black. Between the sidewalk and the parking lot. Because there's a big difference. We know it, right? We, we understand that the safety and the, the life-giving ability is different between gray and black. And we had to keep pulling her back and we had to keep saying, no, stay over here. We don't go over there. We stay over here And she just doesn't understand it. She doesn't comprehend it because she doesn't understand that cars will squish you. She doesn't understand that people don't pay attention when they're driving because they're on their phones or they're looking at their receipt or they're trying to find something on the radio. She doesn't understand that that's dangerous because she can only see this little bit of a picture. Her worldview is so small and so tiny. But Amelia's not our first kid. She's our our fourth. So we've been through this. So we didn't try to really teach her so much about that line. And more, we say, look, mom and dad's number one job is to keep you safe. So when mom and dad say no, you listen now. And if you have a question later, ask a question later. But listen first. Obey first. Joseph had no idea when he was thrown in that pit that he was going to be the second in command of Egypt. Joseph had no idea when he was sold to the slavers, when he was sold to Potiphar, when he was thrown into prison, no idea what the big picture was. But through all of those steps and all of those moments, Joseph did what was right. Joseph followed through with obedience. So let's pause on Joseph's story. Let's put a little pen in it for a minute. We'll come back to it. But let's talk about that idea, the idea of obedience. Obedience is is an interesting word because sometimes we really, really like it. And sometimes it grates on us and irritates us like that pearl, the sand and the the oyster that makes a pearl. Because when people are having to be obedient to us, that's good. That's good. Let me tell you what to do, and you listen to me, and that's good. But when I have to be obedient to you, mm, eh, hold up a second. I'm a grown person. I'm an adult. I make my own decisions. I can do this. I I can do my stuff because I want to do what I want to do, especially when it comes to my relationships or it comes to my money or it comes to my job. I just want to be able to do my thing and not have to do your thing. Because I've got to have control. We just don't like the idea of obedience. Uh, Kal-El is a Cub Scout. He's my my eldest son. Um, And in Cub Scouts, you have to learn the 12 points of the Scout Law. And you have to say them a lot. Like we say them before every pack meeting, before every den meeting, before every patrol meeting. We say them when we're going camping. We say them just randomly. And uh, I don't know if you know the Scout Law, so I'll do it for you real quick. Uh, you know, first you put your signs up. I'm a Cub Scout, so we do two fingers. Uh, Boy Scouts do three. But you put your sign up and you say, a "Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, reverent." And that's the twelve points. Now, Callow is learning this. We're in our fifth year of Cub Scouts, or fourth year of Cub Scouts, and we're figuring this whole thing out. And this is how he does the scout law. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, reverent. You see what's missing there? He skips obedient almost every single time. And I don't know if this is like a mental thing that he's got, that like, I'm not even gonna say that word. And that's like the way he's rebelling and he just refuses to be obedient. I don't know if it's like a Freudian slip that he's skipping over it, or if... He just doesn't do it because it flows just as easily without it. I, I really don't know, but it, it really could be that idea that we have fought against that because we want to have control. We want to be in control of ourselves and not be beholden to anyone else. But here's the thing the key to God's favor in our life often comes down to obedience. C.S. Lewis is a Christian author, thinker, philosopher that lived uh, in the last century. And he puts it this way. He says, obedience is the key that opens every door. Because obedience is good. Good. Obedience is useful and we need to be obedient to God. We need to do the things that God tells us. And I don't want to talk about legalism. Uh, If you don't know what legalism is, legalism is the strict adherence to the rules. Legalism is putting the rules above everything else. It's a dependence on following the rules. Now, I'm going to admit when it comes to sports, or board games, or other types of competition, uh, chili cook-off, I am a stickler for the rules. I I think that you have to follow the rules because without the rules, you're not playing the same game or having the same competition, Brownie Throwdown. I'm just saying, like, without rules, there's chaos. So I'm not talking about just that kind of following the rules so that you know where you are. Legalism is more than that. Legalism is making the rules more important then why there are rules. Legalism is making the rules more important than what you're actually trying to accomplish. We all know people that, that do this and are like that, where they're devoted to the rules instead of being devoted to God. But that's not what we want to talk about when we talk about obedience to God because it's not about the rules. It's not about following a preset series of things that if you just do this list of stuff, then you get to go to heaven and have God's blessing and everything is good. But it's about this. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. Because love is the reason for obedience. It's not about the rules. It's about the attitude. It's about loving God and God loving you. And when you do that, then God's presence fills your life, his favor, his special blessing comes on you. and we see this happen all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the, the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, there is a king of Israel named Jehoshaphat, and in Second Chronicles uh, chapter seventeen, it says this: it says, "The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but sought God." Uh, the God of his father, and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. Because at that time, Israel had been going away and worshiping the Asherahs and the Baals and the false gods of the, the, the pagans uh, around them. And Josephat comes in and says, no, I want to be like my father David. And by father David, he doesn't mean his actual dad, because his dad's name was Asa. But David was his like, great-grandfather. And he says, I want to go back and do it that way. And it says, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed and obeyed. But this promise isn't just for kings. It's not just for uh, giant matters of state and changing everything that a whole country is doing. But it's about obedience and small things too. In Luke chapter five, we meet some fishermen. Uh, verse one says, "On one day, as Jesus was standing uh, by the lake of the Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore." Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and I haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, suppose Simon, who, uh, if you don't know that, Simon ends up being called Peter, and that's how we know, most of the time know him as, as Peter or Simon Peter, What if he had looked at Jesus and said, you know what, you're a good teacher, but we just got finished fishing all night long because that's when we fish and we're just trying to get ready so we can go fish all night tomorrow night and we just are ready to go to bed and we didn't catch anything and it's just going to be a waste of time and it's, oh, you know, we feel that way sometimes when we're told to do stuff, when uh, we're asked to do something, but that's not what he did. He doesn't say no, he says the only answer that can cause a change in your life, he says yes, I will obey. And the crazy thing is, if he had said anything other than that, he would have missed the greatest fishing experience of his entire life. Because of Peter's obedience, the Lord arranged a miracle that I'm sure he never forgot. Verse 6 when they had done so, that is, go out in the deep water and put down their nets, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's a day fishing. That's what it's supposed to look like. You know, Peter, I'm sure, just was obeying what Jesus said because he was this famous teacher on his boat and he said, you know what? It won't hurt anything. We'll go out there, we'll drop the nets, we'll pull them back up, we'll come in. It'll only take about an hour and then I'll go get some sleep and it'll be fine. But when he complied with the Lord's simple request, Christ brought about a miracle that gripped him with so much amazement that he left that boat full of fish and followed Jesus the rest of his life. Jesus turned that empty boat into a full one and changed everything. Over and over again, story after story in the Bible goes the same way. When people obey God out of love and devotion, he is with them, and he's with them in a big way. So how do we do that? How do we find this obedience that brings the presence of God? How do we find this obedience that puts us in the same place as Jehoshaphat and as Peter? What is the secret to obeying God? Well, let me tell you this it's not trying to obey God. Trying is not the secret. Because over and over again, you'll hear people say, I know obedience is important. I know I need to do what God says. I know I need to not be doing this or I need to start doing that. But I try and I try and I try and I just can't seem to do it. Trying isn't the answer. Faith is. Truly believing that God is who God says he is. It's the answer to obedience in God. Because think about it. If you really believe that something in your life that you are going to do is going to be bad for you and have bad consequences and do bad things, you're most of the time going to choose not to do it. You know, we choose not to go speeding down in a school zone because we know that cops watch school zones more than anywhere else and you will get a ticket. So we don't do that unless we're not paying attention. We don't do it on purpose. I'll put it that way because we don't want those consequences. We have faith that the cop will pull us over. We have faith that we will not be able to get away with that. And so we don't do it. But the same is true on the other side. When we have faith that something good will come from an act, we will do that because we know that something good is gonna come. We do what we do every day in our lives because of faith. And not just faith in God, faith in all the things around us. When a farmer goes out to plant his crops, why does he do that? Because he has faith that the seeds will sprout and will grow a harvest. When you go out to your car and put your key in the ignition to turn it, you have faith that all the things are going to line up and fire and do right and your car will crank so that you can get to work. When you get up in the morning and you go to get in the shower and you turn on the hot water... You have faith that the water is going to get hot. Even when you reach your hand in and it's still cold, you don't immediately go, oh, well, I guess the water heater doesn't exist because the water's cold right now. No, you say, I will wait because the hot water is coming. And you have faith. It's sad that too often we have more faith in our water heater than we do in our God. Because we go and we turn that knob on and we know, oh, nope, it's not, not there yet. Nope, not there yet. Nope, oh, nope, maybe a little, finally, hot water. But the whole time we trusted that it was coming. We kept checking, we kept trying, we kept waiting for it. But too often we don't assume that God's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. That we don't believe through our actions that God is who he says he is. Because if we did, our actions would be different. If we did, our lives would be more pointed towards obedience to God. If we really believe that the peace and prosperity and eternal life that God promises was there for the taking, we would do so many things differently. Because God would be with us. I don't know what your life looks like right now. I don't know what struggles wake you up in the morning. I don't know what dreams run through your head as you lay asleep at night. You may be just starting off on this path and don't even know the smallest part of the places where God wants and expects and desires your obedience. If that's you today, I want to say just start with something small. Start with something small. Get in the word this week. Read more about Joseph. Read more about Jehoshaphat and about Peter. And then come back next week as we finish up this series and give God one more week, one more chance, one more shot. But I also don't know if maybe you're on the other side of that coin, that you have been faithfully being obedient through faith for years and years and years that you've been doing everything you can, you've been sacrificing and you've been serving and you've been telling other people about how much you love God and how much God loves you, but still, bad things happen in your life. Still, you feel beaten and broken because you're stuck in a job that you hate that your home life isn't what you want it to be because of finances or because of anger or because of alcohol or because of substance abuse or because of bad choices that other people are making that you have nothing to do with. But those consequences still fall on your head. And you keep praying, God, I know that you love me and I know that I love you. Help me get out of this situation Help me get away from this place and from this time and from these things. And yet you're still there, stuck in the middle of the mire, not knowing how to get out of it. To you, I want to offer encouragement. When we go back and we look at the story of Joseph, before we see him in the palace, we see him in the pit. And we see him in chains. And we see him in prison. But in all of those places, in all of those times, we see him obediently living through faith and doing the things that God wants him to do. We see it in the way that he handles his responsibilities, making everything as good as it can be and always doing his best, even when his situations were the worst. We see it in the way that he runs from Potiphar's wife because he doesn't want to sin against God and the choices that he makes to get away from temptation because he wants to be his best, even in the situation that is the worst. And we see it even when he stands before Pharaoh and says, no, I am not an interpreter of dreams, but God can give you the answer. Because even when a situation is the worst, he knows that God is the best. And it all comes down to him doing what he's supposed to be doing and trusting that God knows the difference between gray and black that God can see the big picture. And friends, I don't know what God's plan for your life looks like. I don't know what God's plan for for my life looks like. I can only see this one little bit, just like everybody else. But I do know this, no matter what kind of pit or prison or change you're in right now, your obedience to God can shine a light into that dark place. Your faith in him that is so great that it causes you to live your life differently will shine a light into that dark place. So don't give up and trust God more than your water heater. Let's pray.